Hey, so what we're going to be looking at today is another piece of the pie, prophetically, and it's the issue of Israel. As Don had mentioned, the main thrust of the tribulation is to break the power of Israel, according to Daniel chapter 12. And the idea to break the power is to get them from um, their pride and to humble them. And it's going to take the Antichrist persecuting them and going after them and uh, literally eliminating two-thirds of them before they cry out to Messiah. And one of the great things about Israel, Paul will say that Israel is our example personally. And if you look at Israel, their stubbornness is just like our stubbornness. And unfortunately, we have to get broken as well, just like Israel will will be broken in the future in order for many of us to come to faith in the Messiah. So their story is your personal story as well. So prophetically, we want to watch how their story continues to eventually them accepting the Messiah. So what I want to point out is the birth pains that we talk about in Scripture, but as they relate to Israel. And what are the signs that they're getting closer and closer to them cutting a deal with the Antichrist, making a covenant of death with him that will seal their doom in that sense and kill two-thirds of them because he turns on them like a sheep-killing dog. And so I'm going to take you up to that point to to get you to, to realize the mindset that's forming right now in Israel as we speak. A couple of years ago, before the pandemic hit, I went to Israel with a group, and we were over there, and our guide, Jewish believer in the Messiah, but their mindset over there seems to be wrong. So we were at the city of David, right there in Jerusalem, and I remember our tour guide coming to us and saying, you know, guys, here, here in Israel, we just want peace. We just want peace, and whatever it takes, we just want peace. And someone from my group yelled out, that's what's going to get you in trouble with the Antichrist. And I thought, you know what? They're right. Many of the Israelis want peace at all cost. And you will see them doing deals with land. You saw with the Abrahamic Accords, which made Jerusalem not only their capital, but the Palestinians' capital, and that was wrong, and enforced a two-state solution. That's wrong as well. But Israel is willing to give that over, give pieces of their land, which belong to them, for peace. That mentality is going to carry through to the end times and eventually cause them, for the sake of peace and protection, to make a deal with the Antichrist. But I want to take you through the birth pains of what has been building, how this mindset is being created. And it starts back with their call back to the land in 1948. But first, I want to show you through the Olivet Discourse how Messiah related this to her birth pains. Now, he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So there were three questions asked of the Messiah, and that's what the Olivet Discourse explains. And we're going to pay particular attention to this last one. What is the sign of the end of the age? That's basically the sign of the age we live in. It, started with, it was there back then, and it's with us today. And then the next age will be the Messianic age, the Millennial Kingdom. 
So he answers this. I want you to pay particular attention to this. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ or the Messiah and will deceive many. So that's a common characteristic that will go on during this period of, of time that we're in. There'll be false Christs, right? And you will hear rumors and uh, war, sorry, hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. What he is basically saying is the characterization of this age will be false Christ, uh, wars and rumors of wars, which that means local, regional wars will be characterized by this age. But the end is not yet. In essence, what Messiah was saying is these are the non-signs. Don't run after these signs because this will be a normalization of this age. False Christ, wars, rumors of wars. Again, regional wars, okay? Then he goes on and to explains something changes. And this is where the change happens in verse seven. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All of these, these signs, are the beginnings of birth pains or sorrows. Notice he is distinguishing these signs from the non-signs. Now, here's what I want to, you see the underline, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That is a Hebrew Jewish rabbinic idiom. He is using the lingua franca of the day. And what you understand when you read the gospels and you read even uh, the letters of Paul, they're using Jewish idioms all over the place. And unfortunately, we Gentiles just simply don't get the, the idioms. So what does nation rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom? That back then was a rabbinic term that all the rabbis used for world war. Not regional skirmishes, not isolated wars, but a world war. And so he's using that Hebrew idiom to say, this will be the sign that the, the end of the age has begun. Wait a second. When was the first time in world history that we saw world war? It wasn't until World War I. And World War II was a continuation of World War I. And both wars had an effect on Israel. Along, coupled with world wars that we saw in World War I and World War II, there was famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. If you read the, 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 the Earthquake Center, National Earthquake Center, or whatever I think the name is, you will see that it, since then, the earthquakes have increased and they're ever increasing even to this day. We have famines, we have pestilences since then. So the coupling of World War I or World War and all these other signs, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, means that the beginning of the last days has commenced. The sign was given, which means this is where we say we're in the last days and we have been in the last days since World War I. We don't know how long the last days will go, but it has begun. And right now, <clears throat> we're watching all the players get in place. 
particularly the issue of Israel. So World War I was the, the beginning of what Messiah talked about. It took almost 2,000 years for that to come to fruition, but it did. And this, was, this is what Jerusalem looked like in 1938. It was barren, nothing there, right? This is what it looked, Israel looked like. The Arabs had been on there for hundreds of years, and they let it go to a wasteland. Mark Twain went over there and said, this place looks like the moon. Nothing had been developed because Jews were not back on the land. Now, yeah, there's a few, but not like it is today, which it makes Israel flourish. So basically, the land had went desolate. This is what it looked like. To this day, if you go to Israel and you go to the Palestinian side, you will see nothing but a moonscape and trash everywhere in Israel. Wherever you see the Jews occupy, you will see a lush garden paradise. It's weird, and it's separated by a border. But this is what happens when the Jews are not in the land. Then, this, the critical thing that happened for Israel in, from World War I was the Balfour Declaration, which promoted Zionism, a return back to the land. And the Balfour Declaration said they have the, the Jews have a right to go back and occupy the land. And so this is what they ended up uh, naming. So they, they hold, the, the whole thing of Palestine was owned by the British, and they were going to give Israel this. Now, they reneged on this, but this was the start of the Zionist movement. Then World War II happened. World War II was a continuation of World War I, and it meant many things for the Jews. First of all, the Jews go through the Holocaust, which is not even taught anymore in public schools. The kids don't even know anything about the Holocaust. If you ask the average person on the street, it's been erased from history. But it had a significant impact on Israel, didn't it? Six million Jews were killed. You know that. But what happened out of that is a movement to create a nation came from World War II. The sympathy from the Holocaust and all the other nations that saw it could not deny that the Jews deserve a homeland. Britain had reneged on their pledge to give Israel the land. So you know who came in there? The United States. And it came down to Harry Truman. FDR has a mysterious uh, uh, illness, uh, aneurysm or something went off in his brain, a bleed in his brain, and it killed him. FDR was anti-Semitic. So Harry Truman takes over, and Harry Truman is being pressured by the Israeli government at that time. He's being pressured by his, some of his friends that he worked with that were Jewish, and he still, and his, and his cabinet was saying, don't make Israel a nation. Don't declare Israel a nation. And you know what happened to Harry Truman? Even though he's all, having all this negative pressure not to recognize the state of Israel, when Harry, Harry Truman was a little boy, he attended church. And in that church, believe it or not, this is before 1948, they taught the little boys and girls to love Israel and to know that God is going to bring them back into their land. Harry Truman was taught that as a little boy. 
Do you know what came in his head when he was trying to make a decision of whether or not to recognize Israel as a nation? It was what his Sunday school teacher taught him. Do not miss the opportunity that when your kids go to Sunday school and the things they learn, especially at Walter's church, I know it might carry them through to an adult where they have to make a life and death decision. And in this case, it was life or death for Israel. And Truman says, I am Cyrus. And he declared Israel to be a nation again. And that set the whole thing in motion for Israel in 1948. And so what happened was this was a birth pain. One of the things that needs to happen with Israel is Israel needs to be back in the land, right? Established as a Jewish, Jewish nation. And this, again, I can't, there's so many prophecies about this. I, I just kind of put the majority of prophetic passages require Israel to be a nation again in the land. Well, that birth pain hit 1948. So we've seen one birth pain now. And then we continue on, and this was the plan of partition, obviously, and they divided up the land during that period of time. So Israel had just a sliver of land, as you can see. Uh, a lot of it was given to the Arab states, and that's where the battle a lot of times come, comes. But, mo but again, you know biblically, Israel owns the entire land because of the Abrahamic covenant and land covenant. May 14th, they're declared, uh, they declare themselves a nation at that point. Israel is reborn in one day. And the state of Israel was born on newspapers. They were celebrating this, and it was a big thing. So what we say here in prophecy is that 1948 is prophetically significant since it fulfills world, the worldwide regathering in unbelief in preparation for the judgment of the tribulation. So don't let anyone try to dismiss 1948. It is fulfillment of Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel 36, and Zephaniah 2, and I will add Ezekiel 37, the dry bones vision, that Israel would be reconstituted, but in stages, and the bones would be gathered and come together. And eventually, through Israel's salvation, the breath of life will be breathed into them after accepting the Messiah. So that was a major birth pain. Now, most prophecy students know this. So let's continue on. Birth pain number two. Israel must control Jerusalem and the old city. That's a big deal. So the 1948 War of Independence through the Six-Day War establishes this. Why is that important? Because they have to control the old city and they have to eventually control the Temple Mount. So the Six-Day War, 1948, all that happened. This is the pictures of 1948. Israel literally fought like Nehemiah, trying to rebuild their state with a, with a hammer and shovel in one hand and a gun in the other one. Literally how Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And it looked like they were going to be decimated. But lo and behold, God protected them and had them to win over the Arab invasion in 1948. They decimated them. Then 1967, you have the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War was absolutely supernatural. When you study the Six-Day War, you cannot help but see God's hand in it. Let me share you a story at the Six-Day War. Seven Jews had got captured, or not captured, but they're cornered in an area in Jerusalem. And an oncoming army of Arabs were coming towards them. 
And the seven Jews in this kind of foxhole area said, okay, boys, I get this. We only have a little bit of ammunition. Not to, we're not going to survive, but we're going to go out fighting. And they got there, and they got their guns, and here's the Arab army coming for them, and they're boxed in, and they're shooting, shooting, and finally they run out of bullets. And here is this horde of Arabs coming in, and it's going to basically massacre these seven Jews in this foxhole. You know what happened? As this Arab army approached, the Jews looked out at the faces of the Arab soldiers, and the Arab soldiers all of a sudden focused their attention up, turned wider than a ghost, dropped their guns, and ran. And the seven Jews in there had no idea what had happened. So let me, tell you to, let me take you to the end of the story. Like 30 years later, one of these Israeli soldiers that was in that foxhole was in a pizza parlor in Jerusalem. And in that pizza parlor, he met another Arab. And that Arab guy said he was a soldier in the Arab army in the attack in 1967. Okay, so check this out. This is a God thing. So they got to talking, and, they, and they, they were saying both of them were in the Six-Day War. Yeah, okay, where were you at? Where were you fighting? This and that. And the two men ended up realizing they were fighting each other at the same location at the same time. The Arab was part of that Arab horde coming, and, and they were the seven in the foxhole. And the guy, the Israeli guy said, look, we were dead, and we ran out of bullets, and we couldn't fend you off, and we thought that was it. And we were just sitting there for you to kill us. But he said, we noticed that you guys got scared, dropped your guns, and ran. And he said, we couldn't figure out what happened to you guys. What scared you so much? Was it a helicopter or something, or what was it? And the Arab goes like this. He goes, I'll tell you what made us all afraid. Above you was a giant man with a flaming sword. Isn't that amazing? Maybe that was Michael, who's the prince of Israel, right? They said, that's why we ran, because he was protecting you, and we just got out of there, because we didn't want him to kill us. Look, a giant man with a flaming sword? Come on. When you study the Six-Day War, 1948, you will see all kinds of miraculous things that help Israel to win these wars. But why? It's heading in a direction. God wants them to go in this direction because he's going to bring them to faith. But this is a birth pain, right? Moshe Dayan took the Temple Mount at that time. They had the Temple Mount in their hands, but Moshe Dayan is a secular Jew, and he didn't want to offend the Muslims because he said, we don't want to start a holy war with Islam. So in fulfillment of prophecy, he gave back the Temple Mount in the Six-Day War to the Muslims. He had it. But what did Jesus say about the Temple Mount? It will be trampled down by the times of the Gentiles, basically, until he comes back. So the Jews had given the Temple Mount, and which is still under control of Jordan at this point in time. But this is what it looked like. You can see the Wailing Wall. You can see the Temple Mount. This is 1967. They were on the top, and they had it. But Israel's not to retain it, right, according to prophecy. 
And you, these are famous pictures that you've seen in the Six-Day War, absolutely miraculous. And what they captured right here, it, you can see the outline of the old city wall. That's the old city. They needed that in fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, that's a big deal. Why? Because in order to have their rebuilt temple, they have to have control of the old city and eventually have to get control of the temple mount. That's where it's going. So that's a birth pain. But it's leading up to things, as you can see. This is the old city from above. They control that today. Now, as you can see, the temple mount's in dispute, um, but we have a satisfaction of prophecy. And why? Because it leads to their deal with the Antichrist and the covenant and their temple. The third birth pain that will come, or is com has come, I'm sorry, is that the mountains of Israel must be in Israel's possession. This was a big deal. They had to get control of Judea and Samaria. And guess when they did that? 1967. According to Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we talked about the Gog of Magog invasion, they have to possess the mountains of Israel because Ezekiel's army is destroyed by God on the mountains of Israel, which means they must possess it. Do they possess it now? Yes. And we call some of the area the West Bank, but they do possess those areas. It's theirs. So the requirement has been fulfilled. And that's what sets up Gog and Magog. You have to have these preliminary setups in order to have the invasion of Gog and Magog. And that's why when we talk about these things, they're all lined up. Now they do possess it, and now they're ripe for this invasion of Gog and Magog into Israel, like we talked about last night. Here's where the passage comes from. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north, and bring you against what? The mountains of Israel. That is now satisfied. A birth pain has passed. That's how far we are, guys. So they took the city. There's pictures of, of the Six-Day War. You've seen some of these. Isn't it interesting? It took six days, and they rested on the seventh. I don't think you make that up. Is that, is that just the weirdest thing, right? You, you can't make this stuff up. Okay, birth pain number four. In order to satisfy Gog of Magog's invasion, Israel must have plunder, like I mentioned last night. I believe the interpretation is that Russia, Iran, Turkey, all those countries that, that are coming in the Gog of Magog invasion are coming for Israel's plunder. Well, that leads to question, where did Israel get plunder? You only get plunder and booty from a war, from vanquishing your enemies. So again, this goes into what I said last night of the Psalm 83, and this is where Ezekiel 38 talks about, have you come to take plunder, the young lions, and take booty? Well, there must have been a previous war before for that, for them to want that. So this is what awaits and we're looking at eventually a Psalm 83 attack on Israel. I believe it's prior to Gog of Magog. I could be wrong. I'm not going to be dogmatic. But I want to know where Israel gets plunder. I want to know where Israel gets booty. And the only thing that makes sense 
is Psalm 83, an all-Arab invasion. Now, again, things might work out differently. There's things in prophecy, guys, we don't see. Sometimes we're just speculating. And this is my best speculation, so I could be dead wrong. But something needs to happen for Israel to get plunder. That's all I'm saying. The aftermath, like I mentioned, Israel expands and has plundered these nations. Now, it's interesting. I had a lady from Canada that was here, and I got to talk to her a little bit. She had a good, good question. And I want to answer it for all of you because it was a very insightful question. She said, some of the prophecy teachers believe that Psalm 83 happened in 1948 and 1967, Yom Kippur, and it was a series of sequences. And because 1948, none of the play, not all of the players in Psalm 83 were, were there in 1948, nor in 1967. So in order for a prophecy to become true, you, you have to have all the players. Well, there's some prophecy teachers out there, and I greatly respect them, that believe it happened in sequential time, 48, 67, not 73. Well, here's the thing. This is my question back to that interpretation, and this is something you need to chew on theologically. Okay. According to these passages, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Obadiah, this describes the aftermath of Psalm 83. And it describes that there are no living Edomites after this war, that they are completely wiped out, that they don't even exist. So the lady I said to, uh, from Canada is, well, then the burden of proof is on the other prophecy teachers to tell me how this happened, and I still don't see it. Where, are, where, are, where is the aftermath of the Psalm 83? Because Edom is the Palestinians. Let me ask you this. Do the Palestinians still exist? So the aftermath from Psalm 83 hasn't happened then, in my opinion. So again, this is debatable stuff, but you, you're in the prophecy world. You need to know where the debates are and, 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 and to really think critically about these issues because they help you to understand the signs of the times. Anyway, I do digress. Birth pain number five. Israel will be given a place to build their temple on the Temple Mount. And notice what Revelation says, which leaves out the core, which is outside the temple, which has been given to the Gentiles. Now, this is interesting that John mentions this in Revelation. He's basically saying this, the court of the Gentiles will not be controlled by Israel when they rebuild this tribulation temple. Oh, that's very interesting. They won't control the entire Temple Mount. They'll control a section of it, and they'll leave the court of the Gentiles to someone else. Oh. Now, you know right now, this birth pain hasn't come to fruition. But there is talks right now, even among the Muslims, they're starting to say that is, they acknowledge that the Temple Mount is Israel's, believe it or not. People in Saudi Arabia are even saying this. Not everybody, but the, 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 the sentiment is coming out. And this whole globalism, unity, uniting all the religions is catching on even in Islam, the liberal Islam, not the jihadis or anything, but the liberal Islam. And they're saying, yeah, we can occupy the same space on the Temple Mount. The thought's already out there right now. So interesting enough, 
Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there's never going to be no Gentile presence on the Temple Mount until Jesus comes back in the second coming. Okay, so let's do the math on that. That then tells us it's very possible that the Temple Mount would be occupied by not only Muslims, but Jews as well. And that's just doing, doing deductive understanding of what the scriptures are saying. So here's the Temple Mount today, right? So what they're proposing is this. Notice there's no court of the Gentiles. It only has the inner sanctuary, the women's court, and the men's court. But there's no outside place for the Gentiles, except if they leave it with the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the, the, the far left-hand side of your screen. If it is like this, it satisfies Scripture, by the way. They don't have to control the entire Temple Mount. Here's artist renditions of what they think it might look like. Requirements, birth pain number five, Israel will re rebuild their temple and reinstitution of the sacrificial system will occur. This is the third temple. This is the, the tribulation temple. And please understand, do not give money to any organization asking you to rebuild this temple. It is forbidden according to Isaiah 66, one through four. It is a temple that is not sanctioned by God and it is called the tribulation temple, which Antichrist will commit the, the blast, uh, uh, sorry, uh, commit the abomination of desolation. But anyway, in order to have a temple, you gotta have a sacrificial system, don't you? And so this is, you see this in Matthew, Luke, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation, that they're actually going back to practicing their sacrifices. It's not commissioned by God, they do it on their own. So here's the interesting thing. You want to know what the third temple looks like, the tribulation temple? Here's the schematics. This is what it will look like. They've drawn it up. They, can, they say they can get this temple up in 30 days. That's all they need. They don't have any money. They have it. This is schematic. This is the real drawings of it. You're now living in a period of time where you're actually seeing the schematics of the third temple. It'll look something like this. Or here's a, here's a model of it. This is what the Antichrist will go in and commit the, uh, the abomination of desolation. Here it is in Jerusalem, encased as a model that anyone can see. So if you, here's the deal. If you go to Jerusalem, go to the Temple Mount uh, organization, foundation, and you can see it right there. Now here's the interesting thing. They've made the articles of the, uh, of the temple... They have this as a picture, but they already believe they know where the ark is. Their theory, and I think it's a good theory, it's probably one of the best theories, is that Jeremiah, upon the Babylonian invasion, hid it somewhere, and they call it Jeremiah's Grotto, down below. That's underneath. And remember, 19, uh, I think 80, 81, or something like that, Israel started burrowing in underneath the Temple Mount, and the Arabs found that out, and they said, you're going to cause a holy war. You need to stop. But the reason they were burrowing under is because they know where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is. And they say this, that they will reveal it once the temple is up. So isn't that interesting? 
It didn't go into uh, Egypt like with you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was down in Jeremiah's grotto in that location and will be revealed. They already say they have it. So there's no Lost Ark. They know it. Anyway, they have the temple furnishings. If you go to the Temple Institute, they already have the candelabra that will burn. It's 24 karat gold. It's already there. They're training the priest. This is the altar of incense they already have built. These are the priest's garments that they will use. This is the table of showbread for the bread, right, in the temple. And they're already do, uh, growing these red heifers in order to purify the area. If they ever get a chance, they're doing this in Israel, growing these red heifers. And then, again, the idea is from numbers that a red heifer's ashes need to be scattered on the area to cleanse the area for the temple. So they still haven't got a pure one yet because they wait two years and they got to see if it has a white hair or, or any uh, blemishes. They haven't found one yet, but they're breeding them right now. Again, they're all set to go. This is part of a birth pain, guys. You want to see the temple? Here is the, the uh, artist's conception based on the model, and it's a 3D rendering. So watch this.
the future is not in their hands, it is in God's. But you see what's happening? I want you to think about this, how privileged you are, and this is how close you are to the tribulation. You have seen the tribulation temple. You know what it looks like now. This is the temple that Antichrist will go in and proclaim himself to be God. Again, it's not sanctioned by God according to Isaiah 66, 1 through 4. But my goodness, take this in for a second. You saw what was predicted by the Messiah, what Paul predicted, what Revelation predicts, and it's in your eyesight. That's a birth pain. Another requirement in the birth pain. The temple requires Levitical priesthood for the temple services. They've got a problem, don't they? You know, how do they know who is from the tribe of Levi if the, all the records of uh, genealogies were burned up in 70 AD? All the records were trashed by Titus, burned up. Today, no Jew except a certain group knows where they come from. They don't know what tribe they're from. God knows, obviously, but they themselves don't. Don't. But here's an interesting thing, and this goes in line with prophecy. Because of our technology now in genetic research, guess what? Dr. Sorecki has discovered, at least in, in a group of Jews, they have a common DNA. And it's only common among these individuals. Data calculations based on the variation of the mutations among the Kohanim today yields a time frame of 106 generations from the ancestral founder of this line. Some 3,300 years, the approximate time of the exodus from Egypt, the lifetime of Aaron HaKohen. In these particular Jews that they have looked at genetically now, they find a marker, and all of them have it. And it's the Jews that have the last name Cohen, Levitt, Levi, Levinson. Anyone with the, the, the little Levi in their name or Cohen in their name, they've all done DNA, DNA research. And guess what? They all descend back to about 1400 BC to one individual. And it's Aaron. It's Aaron. They all have his genetic code in them. That ought to blow you away. Because now, guess what? Birth pain is satisfied. We now have a Levitical priesthood that can actually operate the temple now. And they're training them to this day. They're getting them prepped. Isn't that amazing? Birth pain number seven in regards to Israel. The Zanhedrin needs to be back in operation. Why? Because it was the Sanhedrin, it was the religious leaders that declared that Messiah was doing works by the power of Beelzebub rather than the Holy Spirit, committed the blasphemy of this, of this Holy Spirit, and committed the unpardonable sin, which happened in 70 AD, and therefore rejected their own Messiah based on a lie that he does work by the power of Beelzebub. Officially, that happened in year one and a half of Messiah's ministry. And at that point, he will change his ministry. 
to minister to the disciples, getting them ready for the church. It's only in year one and a half that this happens. The rest of his ministry will be towards the disciples. This is why when you're reading the gospels, you'll see a change going on in the gospels. Before, he will heal people without faith. After the rejection, he requires and demands faith for healing. Miracles will only happen by faith. Uh, and then before the rejection, Messiah talks plainly to the people of Israel. After his rejection, notice what he goes into, parabolic mode in his teaching. And then he will have to take the disciples off and explain it to them, right? No more signs for Israel will be given except the sign of Jonah, right? So any signs he gives is for the apostles. So, and then the last one is the policy of silence. Before, when he would heal someone or preach, he would say, tell everybody who I am. After his rejection, Peter will make the remarkable statement that he only got from God the Father. When Jesus said at Bania's Falls in, in, in Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great, Peter. My Father has revealed that to you from heaven. You didn't get that from any man. Remember that? But then follow up on what he says. But tell no one. Did you catch that? Why does he say that to Peter? Because his ministry to Israel is now over. He, he will then tell people when he heals them, don't tell anybody. Don't tell them I'm the Messiah. He'll actually hide the truth from Israel at that point in time. It was a significant thing, guys. But here's the requirement. The same group that rejected the Messiah will be the group that has to accept him. And that's why it's necessary for the Sanhedrin to be back in place. Oh, and by the way, the Sanhedrin reconvened after thousands of years in 2004. They have been operating now. And in regards to the covenant in which Israel will make with the Antichrist, a good amount of commentators have said it is the religious leaders that will do this covenant and get themselves in hot water, along with obviously political leaders as well, no doubt. But notice it says, with many, not all. So not all of Israel is going to go for this covenant with the Antichrist, but many will, and many could represent this Sanhedrin. Many could represent, obviously, the politicians, but the Sanhedrin, guys, has to be in place. And why is that important? Not only for the covenant with Antichrist, but eventually it is the religious leaders that will call on repentance for the nation of Israel in the last of the tribulation and, and say that Jesus is the Messiah. And, that, and that's when they do it. And think about this, the timing of it. According to Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, it happens three days before the second coming. Cutting it close, Israel. You cut it close. You mean, because according to Hosea, it takes them three days to go through a repentance. They confess Isaiah 53. And then on the third day, Jesus comes back at the second coming. It got that close, that close for Israel accepting their Messiah. But they do. They do. But it'll be the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, that lead them into faith. Here's, you can go to the website 
Uh, you can get the English version, and you can get the Hebrew version if you want. You can read what they're up to, and they're already convening, guys. Birth pain has been satisfied. That's how close we are. Now, here's where I want to get. All these birth pains are leading up to this event, this issue. And this is called Israel's covenant of death. This is what starts the tribulation, is the signing of the peace covenant with Antichrist. According to Daniel... This starts Daniel's 70th week, as Don talked about. It's birth pain number eight. Israel makes a covenant with the Antichrist. In Daniel 9.27, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The one week, obviously seven years. Now, here's the interesting thing. I know there's all kinds of debate in the prophecy world. Here's my take on this. I've looked at the Hebrew. The Hebrew is extremely clear. When it says he shall confirm a covenant, in the Hebrew... It doesn't mean an existing covenant. It means a brand new one that is confirmed by the Antichrist's strength. So there's no strength in the covenant per se, but the strength comes from Antichrist. He provides the strength. So I know there's debate. I take the position it's a brand new covenant. So I know a lot of people try to squeeze the Abrahamic Accords into this. Well, this is the beginning of it. No, the Hebrew is very clear. It's a new one. It's not built on any other thing. And, and then because of what I'm going to explain to you, you'll probably see why it needs to be a new covenant. So Isaiah 28 mentions this covenant and tells you the reason for it. Isaiah 28, 18, your covenant with death will be annulled. Annulled by who? See, Antichrist gets into a covenant, but then he annuls it at the three and a half year mark, right? He turns on Israel like a sheep killing dog and goes after them. And according to Zechariah 13, kills two thirds of them massacres them. You think the Holocaust was bad? You have no idea what the Antichrist is going to do to the Jews. He will massacre them, and only one-third, a remnant, will be left. And your agreement with Sheol, or death, the place of the dead, will not stand. So really, God's, this is God's view of the covenant that they made with Antichrist, that you've made a covenant of death and a covenant with uh, Sheol, basically. It's going to kill you. Here's the reason. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. Ah, that's something we need to pay attention to. It tells you the reason why Israel goes into a covenant with the Antichrist. Some people speculate it's to, that you know, they're going to make a covenant so they can rebuild their temple. I'm just referencing this. That might be a possibility, might be another factor, but the main issue is what Isaiah is saying. So yes, I, I, you know, I'm not going to uh, you know, say, well, if you believe that he's going to make a covenant for the build, rebuilding of the temple, that might be an add-on, but it's not necessary. What is this that he's talking about? When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. So they basically, Israel, goes to Antichrist to prevent more invasions. The overflowing scourge, overflowing is like a, a, a metaphor of water, 
But every time you see um, in, used in, in military words in the Hebrew, the Hebrew idiom means a military invasion. That's like the flood. It floods as a military invasion. So when the overflowing scourge, the scourge is what it's going to do to Israel. That's what they want protection from as an invasion that scourges them. But God is saying when it does happen, you will be trampled down by, and God is saying, you entered a covenant for this security and protection from Antichrist, but it's going to happen to you anyway. Because he will turn on you, and the overflowing scourge will attack you and destroy two-thirds of your people. Ah. So with that being said, then, now we have to drill down. If we're correct on our timing of things. Israel has already went through Psalm 83. They will have went through Gog of Magog. And now that the Antichrist has risen, they're afraid of him attacking them as well. Because what are they doing? He says, when the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. They will be trampled down by the thing they tried to get out of through a covenant, if that makes sense. So it's indicating to you that once Gog of Magog is out of the way, like we mentioned, then the global government comes up, then it's ruled by 10 kings. That's what the 10 horns and the 10 toes of Daniel and the beast represent. But what does it say happens to that, that 10 league confederation that's global? Antichrist comes out as an 11th horn and takes three of them out and the rest of the seven submit to him, right? Hence, then, this is the rise of the Antichrist. Now, yes, Don's right. The mark of the beast doesn't happen until the three and a half year mark. The, the issuing of that and the worship of him doesn't happen. But his rise is rising. He is the rider on the white horse with the bow. And because he's coming to power, what are they afraid of? He has a bow with no arrow, like Don mentioned. What does that represent? Yes, he comes in peace, but the bow represents, I'll put an arrow in that and fire it towards you if you don't back down. It's peace through the threat of war. Remember what Daniel 11 says. Daniel 11 says he worships the God of military so when he rises, somehow he gets some type of military backing, and he's intimidating to everybody in the world. They don't want to mess with him. He, make peace with me, but if I want, I have this bow in my hand, and I'll just put an arrow right in it and fire it. That's what the threat is. So it's peace or else. You understand? Okay. So he's threatening Israel too. And this is what they're trying to avoid. They're trying to avoid an attack by him, so they're going to do a deal with him. Now, again, there's other variables that make Israel weak in order to get like this. Let's talk about that. Number one, obviously, they're tired of the military attacks and these are big military attacks. If you go through Psalm 83 and Gog of Magog, even though God rescued them, again, what's the problem? Gog of Magog only brings a few to faith, but the rest of Israel still doesn't believe. So we, they have a desire 
for these military attacks to stop. It's like I told you about our tour guide in Israel, how they say, we just want peace at all costs. Oh, that mentality right there is going to cause the problem in your thinking. You just want peace at all costs? Let's go back to the Old Testament. What did God always tell Israel to do and not to do? He's saying, when you're being threatened by these other invading forces, don't make allies with everybody else. Just trust me. I'll take you through it. And he would always tell them, don't do that. And what would Israel do? Oh, I need to get an ally with Egypt. I need to get an ally here. And they would make a big mess of it, right? Because they wouldn't solely hold on to Yahweh for their security. Israel always has a problem with security. It's all through the Old Testament. And they always look to other sources other than God for the security. And in this case, the ultimate will be to look to the Antichrist to prevent him from attacking them after a worn, torn uh, experience. Physically weakened. What do you mean? Now, Tom mentioned this. So I, don't hope I, I hope I don't get you kicked off of YouTube like I'm kicked off. <laughs> Israel is on its fourth vax, the booster shot. Fourth, what we now understand about the, the shot in the boosters is that it's creating vades. What's vades? It's a vaccine autoimmune deficiency like AIDS. And what we're finding now, and the T cells are now going down in people that have been boosted and vaxxed, and they have the immune system of an AIDS patient. Who could have thought of that? Israel has been giving it to their soldiers, and they are the test case throughout the entire world of the most vaccinated country in the world. Do not think for a moment that booster and those vaccines are not going to affect them physically. Soon, and very soon, you're going to start pe watching people having all kinds of problems from the vaccines, as they are right now, but more is coming. People are going to start dropping like flies. Why did the insurance companies leak information and saying the death rate between 18 and 64 has went up 40%. A 10% would be a catastrophe, but it went up 40, and no one knows what happened. Well, guess what? Guess when the death started happening? At the rollout of the vaccines. And Israel has taken a bunch. So again, I'm speculating but I think it's a decent speculation based on Israel's desire to continue to have booster shots. They're isolated. Tom mentioned this. I think Don mentioned this. Israel's going to be isolated. They're being isolated right now with the anti-Semitism, right? You understand how bad it's going to get here in America. That it's, the anti-Semitism will get so bad here, they will leave America to go back to Israel. That's how he brought the Eastern Jews out of Israel, sorry, out of Europe to Israel is through persecution and, and anti-Semitism. France, all these places are totally anti-Semitic. But America is becoming this too, and they're blaming the Jews as a scapegoat for most of the problems. So Israel is going to be isolated. So they have nowhere to look. America's gone. Sleepy Joe's eating ice cream, man. I don't even think that guy's going to make it through his term, do you? But then what do you get? Crazy Kamala? Oh, don't say that. There's kids in the room, Brandon. Just, that's too much to stomach this morning. The next one, war fatigue. 
Again, going through these battles, hey, there's no doubt, man, there's war fatigue. People are tired after fighting all this. They don't want to fight, okay? Appeasement mentality, like I mentioned. I, I, I don't understand. I love Israel. I love the Jews. I lo- the land belongs to them. But I cannot ever get my arms wrapped around their government. I, I, even, even Netanyahu did the Abrahamic Accords, which he gave up land. Two-state solution. Now, I'm not stupid, and you're not stupid. When I read the Abraham Accords, it said it made Jerusalem the capital of Israel and the Palestinians. How can two people groups have the same capital? It was like doublespeak in the language of the Abrahamic Accords. But again, what is the deal? Israel's politicians, whether they're hawks or liberals, tend to want to appease they want to just, we want to just get out of this. We don't want to fight anymore. And E is the trade-off. Perhaps this has to do with the temple, but I'm not sure. It might be a part of the deal. It may not. But I am going to leave it in as one of the possibilities of why they do a deal is to be able to have their place on the temple mount. Maybe But as you can see, the thrust of Isaiah is what? War. We do not want to be attacked by the Antichrist. And that's why they do it. Now, let me conclude with this. You've seen many birth pains, and more birth pains are coming. That means we're obviously close to the tribulation, we're close to the rapture, we're close to the second coming. Obviously, we know where we're at. But here's what I want to tell you this about in regards to Israel. I'm telling you right now, Israel is becoming a dividing line in the church. I am seeing it right now. When I talk about the deception in the church tomorrow, I will name the players. I have no problem holding, not holding back and telling you who's going to stab you in the back. And all of them, without a doubt, hate Israel. And the new form of anti-Semitism is, oh, they, they, they dress it up in these theological terms. We're just anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism. And you're hearing this from Christian leaders, that Israel is an occupier. Israel is an apartheid state. Israel doesn't belong in the land. God's done with them. And then you had the insidious theology of replacement theology that has permeated the majority of churches. Thank God you have Walter that doesn't do that, it's, that keeps the church and Israel separate, two entities. But now the new move is, oh, we're the new Israel. It's a lie. It's a lie from the devil. But let me end on this. I'll end on a story. Just like you saw with Harry Truman, he was influenced by his Sunday school teacher at a little age, and he made a huge decision. Let me tell you about another guy, Richard Nixon. Now, most people don't like Richard Nixon. He was an anti-Semite, by the way. Did you know that? He's a complete anti-Semite. But in 1973, Israel was in the Yom Kippur War, right? And they were being attacked, and they were virtually going to be wiped out at that point. The cabinet around Nixon said, don't get involved. Don't get involved. we got to stay out of it. And so he had all the pressure, and even him, being an anti-Semite, didn't want to get involved. But you know what happened? 
his mother's voice came into his head. You know what his mom told him when he was a little boy? She said, son, I believe that one day God is going to put you in a position to help Israel. Isn't that weird? And she says, when you see your opportunity to help them, you need to do everything you can to help them. And so, after all that pressure, in his mind, when Yom Kippur War was happening, 1973, his mama's voice came back to him, and he remembered what his mom said, and he told, against the general's advice, he says, give everything you got to Israel. Everything we have, send it over there. And it was his mama's voice about being pro-Israel, even though he's the anti-Semite, that rang true in him to save Israel's necks at that point in time. That's God, man. That's God. But now let, me, let me bring this to you. This will be a dividing line. You, as a grandparent or a parent, have to teach your kids the importance of Israel. You, at the minimum, all you need to say is, we support the Jews right to the land, and we support the Jewish people. That's all you need to say, right? Amen? Because you never know in your Sunday school if you've got a little Harry Truman. You never know if you're going to have the next president of the United States and Richard Nixon and how that will impact them into helping Israel. Don't ever forget that. Take your stand for Israel, support them, and know they will come to faith in Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can understand about all your prophetic clockwork, your timepieces, the, the birth pains. It's happening. We have a privileged position to see all this. We saw even the third temple, Father. We saw the Levitical priesthood back. It warms our heart to see all these things happen, but it also is bittersweet because we see the tragedy that will happen to Israel, but we know in the end they will come to faith. I pray, Father, if people haven't come to faith on their own personal terms, they would do so today after hearing all that we've had. Today is the day of salvation. Make Jesus your Savior. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.